Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with two separate writers about their latest books. Kicking it off will be local poet Andrea Panzica talking about her latest chapbook, Rusted Bells and Daisy Baskets. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Glad to get you in here on this, this Monday morning, as yes. we were talking about, <laughs> somehow making it through. Well, great. Well, tell me about this chapbook starting off. Uh, how did this collection come about? Well, I would say it began when I uh, was at FSU about 10 years ago now I graduated, maybe a little more. Um, I started writing poetry there. Um, I worked with Barbara Hamby, Aaron Ballou. And so I wrote a few poems, then didn't really do anything for a good, you know, almost a decade. And then I began going to school at UNO. And I... Uh, had a hard time choosing between poetry and nonfiction. I chose nonfiction, but of course I had to go back and write some more poems. So I did. And yeah, I worked with Carolyn Hembry, John Gary. And so that kind of closed out this collection, I feel like, uh, you know, wrote more poems. I was kind of worried, you know, maybe it was a one-time thing, you yeah. know, how can I get back into this? But I did. And, you know, I'm pretty pleased with the result. Well, that's interesting. So a lot of these poems are a lot older then. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them are, um, like I said, about 10 years old. And then some of them are, you know, just from, oh, I don't know, 13, I would say. Okay. Probably. Yeah. You know, I think that that's really interesting. And, the, and part of the things I really liked about this collection is how it seems to move through time. Uh, and I guess having these 10 years of, you know, writing and kind of collaborating with, you know, how you're writing now versus then, uh, did that bring about some of these, like, really interesting, like, per perspective shifts in time? Yeah, I think it did. You know, some of the older poems, I uh, I was like, oh, man. Like, you know, you, you look <laughs> at your older self and it's like, oh, wow. But, um, but you know, it's, I think, uh, from slouching towards Bethlehem, Joan Didion said something like, be kind to your, old, you know, your former selves because mm -hmm. you never know when they might come back. Um, I'm, I'm probably butchering that quote, but something <laughs> to that effect. And so, yeah, it it. I think time is definitely something I'm uh, fascinated with and obsessed by in a certain way. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that the fact that they are actually really old poems and pretty new poems, I think that kind of spices it up a little bit. I think so. Time. I think so. Well, I was wondering if you could uh, share one from the collection. Sure. Uh, do you have uh, one in mind? Um, uh, yeah, actually, I do. Uh, one I really liked uh, was... Uh, Pangea? Oh, yeah. Yeah, which I thought was was great. Okay, so this is um, Pangea. Um, okay. My name, Panzeca, means dry bread. My whole life I told my friends I came from bakers. I swear mom said they were, a claim she since denied. I felt a certain pride when I baked deli bread. Unfurl thawed dough in ten grooved metal slots pinhole to let damp air, inflate the yeast in the proofer before you move the rack to the oven. But once they cool, you have to rip the mass of loaves apart to bag, rapid plate tectonics, split again when customers just order halves. I felt sadness, the lost attachment, how I imagine the east coast of Florida remembers its past with Africa. I love that. I love that 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 working of uh, plate tectonics and geography within like the making of the bread. I think that's a really lovely, um, lovely illustration right there. Oh, thank you so much. Well, great. So you said nonfiction was your focus at UNO, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell me how you got interested in that uh, over your initial kind of interest in poetry. Oh, yeah. Well, 
Well, you know, I think um, I think a lot of what I write just sort of is nonfiction. I mean, I know a lot of people don't admit that sometimes, but <laughs> but um, I don't know. I had this thing where I didn't really feel creative. Like I thought when I was drawing when I was younger, oh, I can't just sit and make up something in my head. I have to like kind of make a representation of what's right in front of me. Yeah. So in a certain way, I think that carried over into poetry. Like, how could I make a fictional fantasy world like it just felt not only that I maybe couldn't do that but that why would I want to because I felt that you know my life was pretty interesting or just the things that I observed in other people were interesting so yeah so yeah I think that's kind of what how that came about interesting and you've also uh written some scholarly articles as well um including one about uh Zora Neale Hurston and uh Florida geography in Uh her book Uh, could you talk about that sure it's funny because one of these poems Janie takes travel cues from, or Gator takes travel cues from Janie and TK. I had written that before I read Their Eyes Are Watching God. Mm-hmm. And when I did read it, I was like blown away because basically the poem was sort of almost the plot in that book in the, in the end when she meets her third husband. And so I just think that because Hurston also grew up in Central Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and I did too, and we both kind of shared this fascination with geography and just the flora and fauna. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's something special about that place. She uh, lived in Brevard County where I lived, and she said that somehow this one spot on earth feels like home to me. And I sort of feel that way, too. I mean, I've been here for eight years now, but I, you know, if there had been a university in Central Florida, I might have stayed there, you yeah. know? So, yeah, it's just uh, I really felt a kinship with Hurston when I read her work for the first time, which was surprisingly late, I should say. Yeah. I was like 30 <laughs> years old when I finally read her work. So um, hey, you got to it, you know, I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's good. Um, tell me about kind of your experiences, like, you know, being in Central Florida for so long and then coming to New Orleans. Uh, do you find a lot of similarities between them or are they, they just extremely different? Because I know Florida in general has a lot of things in common with Louisiana. Yeah, and it's I did have a a bit of a head start just because my father grew up here Mm -hmm. and growing up a lot, like pretty much all of my family lived here. He has five brothers and sisters. And so, um, you know, we visited a lot. So I did get, you know, to visit. I just loved it. I mean, we definitely don't have the French Quarter in Florida. So but there, you know, there's both the flatness of land in both places, humid, um, humidity. So, yeah, they are similar. I grew up kind of right on the beach, so that's different. Uh, we had uh, family friends that came to visit us um, pretty often. And I remember being like four years old. And I was like, Mom, do we have to go to the beach again? And <laughs> she was like, honey, they don't have the beach where they are. So, you know, now I realize, wow, that's true. You know, so whenever I go back there, that's pretty much where you'll find me. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're similar in a lot of ways and different. And when I go back to Florida now, I mean, the highways are, there's like eight lane highways and it takes forever for a light rotation. And here, you yeah. don't really turn left. There's the nice, wide, neutral ground. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, so when I go away now, I'm, you know, where's all the green space? And, I, hey, why can't I bring my drink with me when I leave the restaurant? So <laughs> oh, the, the eternal struggle of going out of town. Exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. No, I get that. Um, you were nonfiction editor at Bayou Magazine. Yes. Uh, tell me, what, in your opinion, having edited, you know, nonfiction pieces for publication, uh, what in your mind makes a good nonfiction piece? What was really interesting for you as far as, like, choosing pieces to go in? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I sort of, I guess, coming from a poetry background, they it, kind of, they both pull at you. I'm ten, I'm drawn more to, um, I don't want to say impressionistic, but, uh, you know, you get a lot of the same stories, mm-hmm. um, so something different, um. 
you know, maybe not so linear. I, I kind of like, you know. Exper- experimenting a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like sort of weaving maybe different threads or, um, yeah, something maybe image-based and not so much plot-based. Uh. So things like that, I would say. Okay, looking more for like things that can stand out, not just like the strict narrative in there. Yeah, yeah, maybe more lyrical language. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, you see a lot of, you know, uh, oh, you know, a lot of people maybe closer to my age, I'm around 30 or even younger, they'll write about, you know, their first grandparent that died. And that's a very common thing. So when you just read a lot of those stories, you kind of, you want something out. So, yeah, it kind of takes it out on you, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, you definitely feel for the person, but you know, you can only read so many stories. So if yeah. it has a really unique element to it, you know, maybe some motif that they weave in there, that can make it stand out. All right, interesting. So, yeah. Well, who who are you reading right now? Ooh, good question. Um, I just read Burst by Ray Armentrout. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was really great. Um, I just read. I've been reading a lot of Eileen Miles just because I just love her work. Um, so I just read Cool for You and Sorry Tree. Oh, I read a comics memoir, she calls it, uh, Turning Japanese Okay. by Mari Naomi. Um, I think that's about it. And, you know, I read Zora Neale Hurston's letters yeah. in between books. Okay, <laughs> interesting. So, yeah, those are some of the few. I can't think of any at the moment. But I go to the library a lot because if I, I just would – I got tired of buying books just because there's no space anymore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of the library, I will say. <laughs> no, me, me too. I live right by Ladder now, and now that it's open again, oh, and they, yeah, they got a table know. right out there, and it's beautiful. It, it's great, you know? I'll have to check that out. Oh, it's good. It's good. Um, no, no, cool. Uh, do you find yourself turning more to poetry or nonfiction when, when you're reading, or is it just kind of up in the air? It's kind of up in the air. I will say that since graduating um back in the spring of 15 I was sort of not done with nonfiction but yeah. I'm like I, I've been writing a lot more poetry I've been reading a lot more poetry yeah. just because you know I was so immersed in that nonfiction you know and I like shorter I find myself writing shorter pieces even yeah. if they are prose it's funny though because I say I write poetry but I kind of just just write like I don't like sometimes I'll lineate things but it's all kind of the same. Like, it's all on a continuum, really, for me. Yeah, no, you know? I can see. When you're editing, like, a piece, if it's it just, like, you know, straight prose, uh, what makes you decide to kind of, like, turn it into a, a poem versus, like, keeping it just, like, in the paragraph form? That's a really good question. Some poems are actually, I don't even lineate yeah. at all. They just kind of stay prose poems. Um, I don't know. It's some, that's... That's one of the great mysteries, I think. <laughs> I, really I don't a, know. Yeah, I don't know. It just, it's something that just, I guess, sort of happens or, yeah. yeah. It's just kind of like like a feeling you get, like, I, I could work with this. This is a little bit more malleable than something else that I've done. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Oh, uh, let me get you to read another poem. Okay. I would love to. This is time your choice, though, because okay. I want to see what you got. Let me see. You know, I think I'll read... Um, um, property values. This is a. Uh, this is unfortunately timely. It's about. Um, well, I won't say what it's about, but it, unfortunately, it's in the news yeah. again. Property values. The neighbors douse their lawns to conform, heteronormative lawn order, to ideas I associate with Donna Reed and date rape. At least in the fifties, the Indian River Lagoon was healthy. Few people lived there. Dikes built to kill mosquitoes crushed cleansing wetlands. 
damned fluidity, gutted the riparian spectrum, a lambo left with red and violet, extinguished species for whom the need for fluctuations not a luxury, RIP, dusky sea, side sparrow, all for a dry flood binary, enforced because skeeter eggs need both to soak and sunbathe. With water just water and land firmly land, all things flow only one way. Fertilizer washes down with every rain, inundates the lagoon with nitrogen and phosphorus. Algae blooms and super blooms, hogs the oxygen seagrass and fish need to live. Dead dolphins and pelicans, hundreds, found with empty stomachs. Dozens of dead manatees, stomachs full but made for grass, fouled with macroalgae. They eat what they can. Tumors form under skins. It rains nearly every day in summer. Each drop, each drop, each drop, each drop. More runoff, more chemicals. The waterway may be headed from the most biodiverse estuary in North America to total devastation. But damn if those aren't some pretty lawns. Hopefully that was okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, you were fine. No, I think that that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what what do you enjoy most about pulling out a blank page and and writing poetry? What I would say is um, kind of not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, some of these poems, um, I just had this moment of like delight or some sort of discomfort yeah. that I wanted to capture and. So that's a certain thing. But then sometimes you just kind of sit down, maybe set a timer and maybe not, not know what's going to happen. And so I really like to see how I might have started writing something, you know, about just whatever. And then end up talking about one thing. Like I I wrote a poem yesterday and I think the first line was something about going to the big city. Like, I don't even know where that (laughs) came from. But the last line was, um, oh, what was it? It was something like. Oh, because I used to tell my uh, uncle, he was on Clay Shaw's defense team. And so um, when I was younger, I would, you know, kind of brag about that to my friends. Like, yeah, my uncle defended the guy that they thought killed Kennedy, but then they caught the real guy. Like, I'd always add that, but that didn't happen. I mean, so that kind of ended up in a poem. So, you know, but who knows? You know, I'd have to go back to see how I got to that point. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of weaving and uh, swerving. That's what I really like. No, I think that's great. Well, uh, Andrea, our time is short, but I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Andrea Panzica, poet and author of Rusted Bells and Daisy Baskets, her chapbook, which is out now. Coming up next, I'll be speaking with Lev Grossman, the best-selling author of the Magician series, about the reissue of his first novel, Warp. How are you doing today, Lev? I'm doing well. Uh, so I've read the foreword of this book, and you describe this really hard time you were going through when you were you were writing this. Uh, I'm wondering what kept you going to get this finished product. I wonder that sometimes myself. Um, it was a difficult time for me personally and professionally. Um, I think um, for a lot of people, that transition from college to the real world is challenging, uh, and it was it was a challenge to which I really failed to rise, uh, and I spent you know seven eight years sort of bouncing from one apartment to another, one career to another. Uh, but the whole time, I sort of lugged this um, 
novel manuscript with me. Uh, I think it was the only way, gave me something to focus on when I had a new job, you know, uh, every other week, um, and a new apartment every other week. Uh, it was something I could focus on, uh, that was constant. And it was, uh, I really wanted it. If you remember that kid in college that you knew who really wanted to be a writer and had no idea how to do it, but just really, really wanted to be a writer, I was, I was a bit like that. Uh, uh, and I, uh, it's not so much that I had faith in myself, but I just didn't know how to quit. I wanted it so badly, and uh, I, I couldn't seem to um, uh, get interested in anything else. I think that that's that's admirable. You, you stick with it, and that serves as your anchor, as you said. I think that's great. Um, well, well, looking back at the novel now, that this first one after the success of the Magicians trilogy, how does that feel for you? It was a strange, strange experience looking back through this book, which was published in 1998. I I, I forget myself, 97 or 98. <laughs> uh, uh, it wasn't a success. I immediately sort of. Uh, moved on to try to write something else, um, and I felt, ended up feeling a little embarrassed about it because it had sold so few copies and been so unpopular. Um, and there was never really a really reason for me to go back to reread it uh, until they decided to reissue it almost 20 years later, uh, at which point I didn't remember very clearly what had happened in it. Um, and, I, and I realized you know, that I'd become a very, very different person um, I could, you know, sense the ghostly presence of my kind of 25-year-old self behind these pages. Uh, and he was so different for me. It was an uncanny feeling. Well, I could see that. Is there anything you would have done differently uh, if you had written it as yourself now? I, I probably would have been sloppier. <laughs> uh, back then, I was very, very devoted to the kind of cult of modernism, the cult of Hemingway and Fitzgerald and the Mojuice. Uh, and I was a very, very careful constructor of sentences. I, was, I went over them and over them, and they were so polished and carefully arranged, um, to the point where they became a little cold and inexpressive. I like my writing now. It, it's, it's freer and sloppier than, than, it, than it was back then. Um, back then, everything was very, very tightly controlled. I think that's, there's that, and I think the other thing is... Um, you know, I, I was, I was, I was, I was in my 20s. I was kind of a young 20s. I didn't really know very much about myself, uh, and uh, I think that I gave into some self-pity in those pages. You know, sort of woe is me. Here I am. You know, this middle-class white guy who can't get his act together. Um, <laughs> there are worse problems to have, um, but uh, I couldn't. I, I, I got a little kind of caught up in that kind of problem. Uh, basically, I was depressed. Um, and couldn't see very far outside myself. Um, I, uh, in fact, I when I, before the the book went back to press, I went through and deleted a couple of sentences which were just a little bit over the line, self pity wise. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line out there somewhere, and I crossed it. <laughs> well, that's good. At least you have the awareness, and uh, you were able to do that in the editing, which is which is nice. Yeah, that was quite a gift, actually. <laughs> Well, you know, on top of that, it is a novel of its time. Uh, again, you, you mentioned in the Ford being heavily inspired by uh, two, two, you know, pop culture icons of the day, uh, Slacker uh, and Generation X, the book. Uh, could you talk about 
uh, looking back at that time in general, just uh, and how you look at it now. Yeah, well, this was the early 1990s, uh, which I think we will remember mostly as being the last moment, the last millisecond before the Internet and the web came crashing down when mainstream and changed everything. Uh, and it was a moment where uh, we were fascinated by this idea of Generation X, um, which was, you know, it was sort of, we'd gone through the 60s and 70s kind of counterculture, we'd swung back the other way with 80s, this obsession with corporate, uh, uh, corporate greed. Um, both of those by the 1990s seemed bankrupt, and yet, um, for some reason, we of Generation X were really having trouble coming up with an alternative, uh, except sitting in our apartments, um, you know, talking and drinking too much. Uh, and, you know, Slacker and, and, and Generation X by Douglas Copeland, they both, they captured that moment so well, so powerfully, and uh, it was something that I aspired to do as well. It's, it's very funny looking back now um, and watching the characters hunt for payphones to try to call each other <laughs> and try to figure out if they get lost in the city because they don't have Google Maps on their phones. Um, it's, uh, it's very much a period piece, uh, I think not unpleasantly, um, but uh, it's of a, of a particular moment. Yeah, I think that can be lovely. It's so so funny if you look at like certain thrillers and things now. People have such a harder time figuring out plots because uh, everybody's a cell phone. Everybody can be checking their email. Just like there's this instantaneousness that uh, kind of ruins a lot of typical plot devices we've had for like the past three hundred years. I've I've run up against that myself. I mean, usually you know when the the critical moments are decided by somebody sitting at a computer typing, which is not very dramatic. They're not <laughs> running through the streets, you know, trying to deliver, you know, I don't know, a telegram or something. <laughs> they are sitting, you know, they're sitting typing. It's, um, it's, it's challenging, but I feel as though, you know, literature, as it always does, will figure out a way to represent it compellingly. Of course, of course. Um, speaking of your, your own uh, writing habits, I'm wondering if you have any... Uh, how you you start your how do you write do you you start your day doing it do you do it at night uh, how how are those things going to pro- progress for you well um i i i spend a lot of my most of my writing life almost all of it um with a day job with a 40 hour a week job um so writing uh has tended to happen it's something that i i i stuff into the interstices of my days um i i'll write on the subway I'll write, um, you know, at work when I've got a little break or I've got a little ahead of my deadlines. Um, I, uh, I, I, I will write in the mornings. The evenings are tougher for me. Um, weekends are important. I, I've, I've, I carry around a computer and I write whenever I can. At this exact moment, I'm taking time off from work and have most of the day every day, which is a luxury that I've almost never had in my life, and it's incredibly great. Uh, and in that case, um, uh, I get up, I get my kids to school, and um, then uh, I hit the comfy chair where I do my writing, and um, I'll just go for four, five, six hours at a stretch. Wow. Um, it's, uh, I, I get to it as soon as I can, um, which means kids at school, coffee ingested, um, and then uh, I get at it. I'm in that honeymoon phase that you have sometimes where... Um, you're excited to get to your manuscript every day. 
this will not last. <laughs> uh, there will come a day when I'm sitting in the comfy chair playing online Scrabble for two and a half hours before I can bring myself to even open a Word document. But at this exact moment, I'm, uh, I'm in that nice place where I get right to it um, because I'm excited about it. I think, I think that's great. Again, I was about to say, man, you seem really focused. Is that all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I wrote the, the Magician's Trilogy. Was my, I mean, that was the thing that I wrote that was really successful. Uh, it took me about 10 years to write those three novels. Um, I, and now uh, I'm either done or taking a break from them. I can't tell which. Mm-hmm. Um, and working on something new. And it's really exciting to, um, to just... Uh, move outside this world that I've been in for 10 years, this group of characters, um, and just, just, just try something new. It's really um, liberating and exciting. I think that's fantastic. Um, this, speaking of the magicians, again, um, how was it seeing that brought to the screen on sci-fi? That was, uh, that was, that was a great, that's, that was and continues to be a, a, a great, great thing. It's incredibly exciting. And, um, you know, for a writer... To be completely frank, um, uh, and I've talked to the writers who feel this way, uh, you know, a screen adaptation is probably first and foremost a way to for more people to find your books. Um, it leads people to your books in a way that's just incredibly exciting and, and, and gratifying. But it's um, uh, also exciting beyond measure to watch people try to bring um, not bring to life because I think books are plenty alive, but execute in reality some of these things you've described, build, you know, build a school for magic, dress up in uh, the way you describe these characters dressed uh, in books, say their lines out loud. It's, it's, it's like a dream. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's strange and wonderful. It also, you know, it, it involves giving up some control. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're writing a book, uh, you know, you really, nobody has more control over their medium than the novelist does over their novel. Um, with TV, uh, you're collaborating with 100 people. Uh, and I had trouble ceding control, um, that much control to other people. That was a, a bit of an education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. You know, every, 100 other people and everybody has an opinion, right? <laughs> they do, and they're experts. I used to dress my characters. I, I remember the old days when I used to dress my characters myself. <laughs> They've got like five people in the wardrobe department. The whole job is to decide what these people wear. They're much better at it than I am. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big, big change. Interesting. Well, um, our time is short, but I do want to ask you one more question. Um, what are you reading right now? Uh, the, new, the book that I'm working on is um, it's a book about King Arthur, and it's the first really heavily researched book I've ever done. Mm. I'm used to making things up um, out of my own head or in a pinch checking Google Street View to see what a building looks like. <laughs> um, now um, I am reading very quite closely in um, uh, studies of the Roman occupation of Britain, uh, mm. the sub-Roman period that followed it right after that, trying to peer back through time to figure out what exactly physically was happening in the 5th century in England, which is, and if, 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 if King Arthur was real, that's when, that's when he lived, mm-hmm. um, and what those people were like, uh, um, based on very trace amounts of evidence. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's incredibly interesting, um, but uh, I've never dove into uh, a research project like this, and I'm sitting in front of my desk, which has just stacks and stacks of, of, um, of 
books about uh, that period and um, also the medieval period, knights, combat, just what they did all day. Um, uh, it's not a terrifically interesting answer. I recently read um, uh, Colson Whitehead's um, The Underground Railroad. Mm. I read Jonathan Saffron Forrest's Here I Am. Um, Chris Cleve's uh, Everyone Brave is Forgiven. I have trouble with that title. Um, that's other stuff I've read this year, but mostly I'm doing heavy, heavy research. No, I think that's important. That sounds like an interesting project you're work on, working on. Excited to see that come to fruition eventually. Uh, I'll be excited too uh, if I get that I'm knocking on wood. <laughs> Good. Well, we're uh, we're wishing you the best of that. Uh, Liv, this was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was author Lev Grossman, the best-selling author of the Magician series, speaking about the re-release of his first novel, Warp. Before that, we had Andrea Panzica, a local poet in the city, who was talking about her latest chapbook, Rusted Bells and Daisy Baskets. And that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writer's Forum on WRBH, which you can catch every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and also Sunday at 1 p.m. This interview, as well as all of WRBH's other interview programs, will be uploaded onto our SoundCloud page, which you can find at soundcloud.com slash wrbhreadingradio. Also, you can download us on iTunes at WRBH Original Programming. I'm David Benedetto, signing off until next time.